And the Lord said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of the earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it with hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let this be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat the unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Habib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feasts of harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, please take your word this morning. As you give the words to Pastor Andrew to speak today, may our ears hear what we need to hear. May your spirit bring life to us as we hear these words this morning. Use it in our lives in order to bring back glory and honor and praise to yourself even today. Illumine your word before us, we ask, O oh God. We pray all these things now in your strong name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I wonder at the close of the scripture reading, how many of you had to change your dinner plans? Oh, I was going to drink that or eat that goat boiled in the milk. Every age has its signature afflictions, says uh, Korean-born philosopher Byung-Chul Han uh, in a book called The Burnout Society. Uh, burnout for Han is this combination of depression and exhaustion. 
the sickness of a society that suffers from excessive positivity, an achievement society, a yes-we-can world in which nothing is impossible, a world that requires people to strive to the point of self-destruction. It reflects a humanity waging war on itself. There's much there, and we'll return to some of the themes earlier, but that, that last line, a society waging war on itself, uh, stood out to me. You think, like, who would do that? You know, like, why would we wage war on ourselves? We would want to maybe protect our interests and wage war with other people. Why would we want to wage war on ourselves? And yet... This is the propensity of humanity since the fall. Uh, in that moment, we waged war on ourselves. Instead of living in uh, the peace, the serenity, the shalom that God had created, uh, we moved in direction through Adam and Eve, our uh, federal heads or our covenant heads. We moved in a direction that waged war on ourselves. And, and so God has been working to sort of undo the effects of that. God has been working to, to lay out uh, a program, a path of life that would, would help us to see, like, this is the direction that you are to walk. This is where you're going to find joy. This is where you are going to find happiness. As we continue our story through this middle part of Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Uh, Egypt, this place of broken spirits, harsh slavery, willful idolatry. Uh, the Promised Land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land uh, that symbolizes rest, a land that symbolizes fellowship with God. In between, we come to Sinai. A and Sinai, as we said last week, is the place where God is reforging this broken down people. Where God is saying, this is who you are. This is what it means to walk with me. This is where you're going to find joy. This is where you're going to stop waging war against yourselves. Uh, and you are going to be the people that I have called you to be, that I have made you to be. So interesting. I mean, we think about Israel's journey, and of course, God uh, shows up in remarkable ways, leading them out of Egypt, demonstrating himself to be a strong father, to be uh, the one who is worthy of worship. And then he gets them to Sinai, and, and from an American perspective, we're like, yeah, this is the God that I anticipated. He gets them out there and lays down a bunch of law. Uh, he just starts, you know, right in in 20. Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't do these 10 things. And, and then there's three chapters laying this out. But if we think about the law in that way, restrictive, uh, sort of tight in terms of walking this way, all of the, we've missed completely the heart of what's going on. One writer puts it, Two things. There are two things that are to be kept in mind about the law, the book of the covenant that we are going to read. Law is response to redemption 
not a precondition for redemption. We already highlighted that. Always, you know, we pay attention to the order. Grace comes before law, indicatives before imperatives, if you want to talk in a New Testament term. This is the distinctive of Christianity, and, and this is at the heart of a right understanding of who God is. Secondly, says we have to understand that the law is a positive undertaking for Israel. It's not a burden, but it's liberation. It is God's pattern of vertical and horizontal conduct for his people. Since the Israelites have been redeemed, it is now a path towards a full realization of God to universal plan of redemption, a plan that will only truly come into its own with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So law isn't a burden, but it is a path to freedom. You know, as we are getting closer and closer to the 4th of July, we celebrate the freedoms that we have in America every Sunday. Uh, when we come together on the first day of the week, we celebrate the freedoms that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to just highlight two of them for you today, the freedom to worship and the freedom to rest. And and we start here because the next three weeks we're going to be looking at what we call the Book of the Covenant. You remember last week uh, God uh, initiated this covenant with people or he confirmed the covenant with his people in Exodus 24. So we're going back a little bit. But Moses was very careful to read to them all the words uh, that he had written down that God had given them. And that's what we're going to be looking at these next several weeks. We're going to be sort of diving in, trying to understand the heart of God. You see them uh, sort of summarized in the Ten Commandments. Then they're given flesh in some of the case law that begins in 2022 and goes on through 23. Um, It's given some flesh in that. Jesus summarizes them this way. He says, love the Lord your God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. And so you see them organized in this way. There's ways that we relate to God. There's ways that we relate to our neighbors. There's that vertical, the the horizontal. Uh, And and this is all the freedom that God wants us or invites us to live in. So today, we're just taking that vertical access. (coughs) The freedom that God invites us into to worship and to rest in him. This is what we call the first table of the law. Uh, You shall have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, Worship and rest are what characterize this first table of the law. So let's see if we can begin to understand this a little bit more. Uh, You see we started uh, in 2022 Uh, with this command about worship. You've seen for yourself, I've talked from you from heaven, you shall make no gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. Uh, And then he goes on to describe a little bit about altars. You see sort of the pattern here. Uh, This is sort of uh, blowing up uh, the, the first commandment that God has given them, the first and second commandments, both that he is to be worshipped alone and how he is to be worshipped. Here God expounds on them and gives them some 
uh, tracks to run on. Two things that I just want to call to your attention about this. First of all, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, if I'm going to guess, uh, I'm going to guess that most of you hear that in its negative form. Uh, like, this is an exclusive command uh, that we are to have no other gods before me. Now, it's not wrong. Uh, that, that is true. We, we, we do recognize that. But now I want you to get dusty. Put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the Egypt, uh, of the people who have recently come out of Egypt, and listen to how freeing this is. You are to only have one God, as opposed to the hundreds of gods that you were worshiping in Egypt, Hathor, Osiris, Re, Set, uh, Isis, I mean it goes on and on and on, uh, all of the different gods, each with their own specialty, you know, fertility, sun, uh, war, violence, uh, all of these different things. And for each one, you had to figure out, like, how it is that I am going to please them. You have to figure out how it is that I am going to appease them, how it is that I am going to live before them, and this God is demanding this, well, this God is demanding this, and these seem to be contradictory. And on top of that, these gods are always changing. If you read through the history of the Egyptians' gods, you see that one generation, the emphasis was this, the other generation, the emphasis was this, and then other generations, you know, this god was the highest god, then other generations, this god was the highest god. And here God comes to this people who had lived for 400 years in this land, were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians, and he says, let me make this easy for you. One god, and I don't change. You see how freeing that is? So again, we tend to hear that in its exclusivity, uh, like God is clamping down on us. Uh, but for the Egyptians, when we really understand these Israelites having come out of Egyptian, out of Egypt, uh, with these Israelites having come out of Egypt, it is so freeing. One God, and I don't change. And this is what God is inviting us into as well. You know, as we seek to come into a relationship with him, uh, we seek to follow out our discipleship. God says, let me make this easy for you. It's just me. It's just me. And I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, why is that freeing for us as a culture? I mean, surely we don't have all these gods, right? We don't have Ray, Osiris, Iris, Hapheth, you know, Horus, all of these other uh, gods of the Egyptians. We don't have the uh, Greek or the Roman pantheon with Jupiter and Saturn and uh, Mercury or uh, Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite. We, or don't we? Recently, there was a book that uh, came out. It's called Cultish. It's one of sort of a series of books. Uh, Addison recognized or uh, referenced the book Strange Rites uh, recently. These are a couple of books that talk about the way that our worship 
in modern society gets spread out among many gods. Uh, in Cultish, which was written by uh, Amanda Montel, uh, it's a book about the sort of cults that people join every day and the linguistic patterns those cults and cult-like brands use to reel us in. So what she's saying is that everything we do uses the language of religion and worship, and, and we buy into that. Uh, the demands of modern living, Montel says, has left many people looking to brands and to gurus for the kind of guidance and meaning that they used to, that they used to find in religion. I know more people who worship at the altar of Peloton than I do who go to church. You see, we haven't given up this notion of sort of waging war with ourselves. We, we still find multiple, a multitude of gods to worship, whether it's our physical fitness, uh, Peloton, whether it is... Um, whether it is our, our finances, our, our checkbooks, our wallets, our 401ks, these types of things, whether it is our success or our academic achievement, you know, how many letters can we get behind our name, like these are the things that are really important to us, can be our parenting, our families. Uh, these are all good things that become ultimate things. Uh, we begin to worship. We, we lay down our, our lives to these things. And it's exhausting. You know, we, we begin chasing after all of these different uh, ideals. And, 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 and they become our gods. And, and it's hard for us. It's hard for us uh, to worship God alone. And so God comes and says, let me set you free. Let me set you free. Get to know me. Worship me. Find yourself uh, at my altar. And that's really the second thing that we see here is that God not only comes to us and uh, sets us free by putting himself alone in front of us, but he also gives us instruction on how we are to worship. We see that here in this passage in a number of different ways. Uh, we see, maybe I'll just mention first of all, that the worship of God is distinctive from the worship of the nations around that. You see that in a number of different ways. You know, that, that verse in, in verse 19 of chapter 23, you shall not boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. We're like, what in the world? Like, <laughs> Why is that in there? And this is one of the reasons why as people are doing their Bible reading throughout the year, they stop about Exodus 20 to 23 because it's just so foreign to us. We, we don't think about those things uh, ordinarily, but probably a pagan practice. I mean, most commentators will say that, that this was a characteristic of pagan religions. And, and one of the things that God is doing is saying, we, you worship different. So that's why in verse 18 of chapter 23, uh, he, he says you're not to use leaven with your sacrifices. 
part of that is a remembrance going back to the Passover, but that was also a practice of the pagans. Later on in, in some of the laws in Leviticus, we're told that they're not to use honey with their sacrifices. Again, a, a pagan practice. You see in Exodus 20 where it talks about uh, the last verse that we read there in Exodus 20 where it talks about your nakedness being exposed upon the altar. Pagan practice. You know, they would dance naked and it was part of the fertility rituals. And, and God is saying, you know, don't make my worship look like the nations around me. You know, we have these things even that we wrestle with today. You know, one of, the, one of the ways that we think about worship, we have this thing called the regulative principle. Uh, if you want a long discussion on it, I'm happy to have it with you, the regular principle of worship. But basically what it's saying is that we worship God through what he has revealed to us in the scripture. So things like uh, prayer and singing and exposition of God's word. Like these are the regular and ordinary parts of worship that we are to employ. Uh, you know, we're not to have our worship services look like other parts of culture, concerts, all these different things. You know, there, there's lots of things that we can do that appeal to people. Uh, but one of the things that God says is that I want you to worship me in the way that I prescribe. Again, not as a burden, but as freedom, because it, it's exhausting to try to hew your own stones. You know, when we come to worship, and if we're trying to make our worship be the, uh, the absolute crowd pleaser, like that, that is exhausting. And so God says, it's fine. You know, take the stones as they are. You don't need to hew your own stones to come and to worship me. I will set you free. Not only does he say it's not to look like the nations of the world, but it's to have a rhythm to it. Uh, we know from uh, the, the course of the various laws, we see it here, that there is a rhythm with regards to week. You know, there is one day out of the week that we are to set aside for worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, that was the seventh day of the week. We see a transition in the New Testament to the first day of the week uh, as God's people for the sake of organization. Not saying that a particular 24-hour period is somehow more holy than the others. In fact, when Jesus fulfills the law, he makes every day holy. Uh, every day is the Sabbath unto the Lord our God. But for the sake of honoring the rhythms that God has built into creation, for the sake of order and organization in the church, we set aside the first day of the week where we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to order our lives uh, so that we can reorient ourselves to the worship of this one true God. Festivals, God gave them festivals throughout their year so that they could mark sort of the liturgical happenings of the year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Tabernacles, Weeks. They have some different names. They, they kind of um, 
you know, as we read through them, their different names are used for them. But we have the same sort of thing. You know, as we walk through the Christian calendar, we remember Christmas. We remember Good Friday and Easter. We remember the ascension of the Lord. We remember Pentecost. You know, all of these things were part of a story. And God wants us to be connected to that story because it helps us to remember who we are. Remember, we're a people who likes to wage war against ourselves. And so much of that is forgetting who we are. And so God lays out these festivals in order that they might, uh, in order that they might remember their story. But at the heart of worship uh, is what? If you look in that uh, little section there in, in chapter 20, at the heart of worship is sacrifice. And from the very beginning, as God brought the people out of Egypt, and we saw this last week in Exodus 24, there was always this reminder that you are not going to live up to who you are, and you're going to be in need of a redeemer. You're going to need the blood of another to, to step in and to atone for you. And so we have burnt offerings and peace offerings that are offered. And, and Israel is to remember uh, from the outset until Jesus comes again that, that we are always centrally in need of atonement, but that that atonement is provided. And this is the heart of God's gracious initiative with his people. He says, I want you to worship me, but I know you're going to fail. I, I know you're not going to live up with that because your, your heart is an idol factory. You're always going to be pursuing these gods, small g. So I am from the very beginning going to remind you that your relationship with me is not based on your perfection. Your relationship with me is based on my gracious provision. In the Old Testament, of course, was the bulls and the lambs. Uh, in the New Testament, it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is Jesus Christ who went, who gave his blood in order that we might be cleansed, in order that we might be purified. He is the second Adam, where the first Adam plunged us into this story of disobedience, of self-worship, needing to do it all ourselves. Uh, it's the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sets us free uh, through his blood. So God invites us as one God. You know, pursue me. Uh, find your meaning, your significance. Find your path in me. And we know, we know now, from what David says, that when we, or what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, which we just got said, when we, when we really pursue God, he's our delight. It's going to be the wide places. It's not constricting. It is joyful. We find release. We find freedom. We find rest. And this is really the second thing. It's so interesting to me, and I, I'm probably slow, uh, but... It, 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 was, it was illuminating to me to make the connection between the opening, uh, between the first and the last commands of what we call the first table of the law. You know, our relationship to God. What, what does it mean to love God? 
You know, first, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship me in the way that I commanded. Your lips shall honor my name. Those are the first three commandments, right, the Ten Commandments. The fourth uh, closing is to rest. Worship and rest. This is what it means to love God. I don't think many of us probably think about resting as what part of what it means to to love God, especially not in this society that we live in today. Again, so contrary to Egypt. Egypt, slavery. I mean, seven days a week, there was no rest. 24-7, you were baking bricks without straw. You were giving your children to the service of Egyptians. So when they come out of Egypt, we're told that they were a people of broken spirit because of harsh slavery. And, And God comes to them and says, listen, you're going to be my treasured possession. You are going to be this people to my glory. And one of the things that is going to characterize our relationship is rest. You're, you're going to rest in me. In fact, I am going to build it in. I've already built it into creation. You know, this rhythm of, of dark and light, day and night, uh, 24-hour period. You are to rest. Uh, I built it into your week. You know, from the very beginning, God rested on the seventh day. It wasn't because he was tired, but because he was setting us a pattern where he says, six days shall you labor, and the seventh is a day that you rest unto me. I'm going to build it into your season so that as we follow the story, there's going to be these feasts and these festivals where you lay down your work and you, and you rest in me. You celebrate what it means to be my child. I am going to give you the gift of rest. And I can't think of anything that is more needed today than the gift of rest. It seems like every third book that comes out comes out about burnout or exhaustion. I already sort of highlighted that uh, with that opening quote, you know, just talking about burnout, this combination of depression uh, and exhaustion that characterizes so much of who we are as a people. Writing for the New Republic, John Malasek says this, in the last few years, burnout has become an important key word for understanding our misery at work and frustration with the rest of our lives. Um, And he goes on to say that this is so prevalent that it's actually turned itself on its head and it's become a source of pride. There's a deeper, more insidious side to our eagerness to claim burnout. Saying that you're burned out is a subtle form of praise. If you're burned out, then you must have been a roaring blaze of productivity to begin with, an ideal worker in a culture that values work practically above all else. In the religion of work, the burnout is a martyr. We complain that work is crushing our bodies and souls, but we also love it. The pain is how we validate who we are. On some level, we want to burn out. Only those who are extraordinarily committed burn out after all, so wear it like a badge of honor. And and, and this is a society 
that, that can so easily creep into our lives. And, and I see it in myself. I, I, I see it, you know, I think about the responses that you give to people. How are you doing? Well, it's just so busy. You know, you've got so much going on. And, and that somehow speaks to my own self-worth, my own validation for who I am. But God comes and he says, I want to offer you rest. Now, rest is not just inactivity. Uh, just like waiting is not just, uh, you know, sitting there idle, but it's actually keeping our eyes on God. And what God is offering us here is rest in him. You see how rest and worship are connected. It's pulling apart you know, from these things that just grind us day after day, these things that, that we are putting our, our hope in, things that we're deriving our identity from, it, it's pulling away from those things, and it's putting our eyes on Jesus, and we're saying, you are the source of my identity. You are the source of my rest. It's in you that I find out who I am. It's in you that I am energized, I'm given the strength for, uh, for going on day by day by day. Think about just that definition, resting is not inactivity, it's not leisure, you know, so much of what we think of as rest, we sort of equate with leisure, and leisure can be pretty tiring. I mean, how many of you have been on these vacations where you come back more exhausted from the vacation uh, <laughs> we, uh, uh, than we, we did when, before we left? You know, rest is, is unplugging, and that's difficult for us in this electronic age. I wrote just a word about that in our Friday letter this week. On average, Americans are working four weeks more uh, today than we were in 1979. You know, this is contra sort of the time-saving devices that we have where we think like we're, but, but we're just driving ourselves harder. We're doing more. We're accomplishing more. And, you know, it's even hard for us to turn off, to, to turn that phone off. Uh, 2007, the introduction of the iPhone, our lives changed and not necessarily for the better. Uh, and it all centers around this idea of resting in the Lord. Now, my greatest fear for this is that I would go too long, and I see that I'm already getting there. Uh, but my greatest fear in talking about this uh, is, is some sort of casuistry. Like, I don't want to make the invitations that God gives us here of worship and rest into another duty for you to perform. I, I don't want you to walk out being beat down and being guilt-ridden by, uh, you know, a, a driven need to fulfill this law. That is not why God gave this people this law. He is inviting them in to know him, to be known, to worship, to rest, to find their identity. And you're not going to get there by trying harder. You're not going to get there by hewing your own stones. You're going to get there by letting go, by surrendering, uh, by finding yourself 
uh, taken up in the delight of God. One writer puts it this way, to, to fail to see the value of simply being with God and doing nothing is to miss the heart of Christianity. Now, don't worry. Your lives aren't going to become ineffective and inefficient in all of these things that we've put out. When you are with God, he is going to show you the ways that you are to go. But it might, make, it might look differently than the ways that we impose upon our lives right now, believing that we have to do with our activity. Resting, being with God. Here's, here's a challenge for you, just really practically. You know, in the next week, try to take a 24-hour period where you, uh, you, you commit to just refraining from any technology. Reading the news, uh, checking your email, uh, responding to texts, checking Slack, any of these things that you are prone to do, and just be with God. You know, if it can't do 24 hours, make it 12, you know, make it four. I, I don't care what it is. Again, it's not the amount of hours that matter, but it's learning to rest, uh, enjoying the gift of rest that God gives us. Here's how another writer puts it as we look forward. Unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath while still in this world, Unless one is initiated into the appreciation of eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. Sad is the lot of that person who arrives inexperienced when led to heaven and has no power to perceive the beauty of the Sabbath. What do we do as we rest in the Lord? is we get that taste of heaven. Worship, rest. This, this is what we're going for. This is what eternity promises for us. And God says, enjoy me now. Enjoy me now. Put it aside. Rest in me. I have done the work. You could never, never achieve your way to heaven. I've done the work. Will you find rest for your souls? We pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this word. Uh, it is challenging. It does really hit us at the place of identity. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we seek to lay down our own strivings, as we seek to lay down uh, the ways that we are earning our identity, whether through the things that we worship or whether through our activity uh, and just how that all gets mixed together. Lord, we pray that we would find in you uh, our delight, that we would find in you the freedom that we need. We pray that in you we would find uh, the green pastures, the still waters, that we would indeed find the rest for our souls. Meet us, we pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our Sabbath, uh, that you have fulfilled the law, that you now invite us to come in and to surrender to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.